Welcome to Fintrepreneur. This is Dave and Eli. And today we've got Go Easy CEO Jason Mullins, who I've had the pleasure of knowing for a number of years now. Jason runs Canada's largest non-bank consumer lender. Is that right, Jason? Certainly one of the leading, we think. Maybe not quite largest, but we're we're getting close. Yeah, particularly in unsecured consumer installment lending. I think you guys would uh, probably be number one. And you run the biggest business of, of anyone we've had on the show thus far, over $2 billion in loan book, approximately $2 billion in market cap. I pulled up your most recent quarter, and I see that your run rate over a billion revenue now and you know netting hundreds of millions of dollars a year, very impressive scale. I think it's one of the most interesting stories in Canadian non-bank financial services, frankly, and what you've done over the last 10 to 15 years. So a real honor to have you on the show, Jason. Today, we'll we'll be chatting about the story, how you got involved with the business to start and, and maybe share a few of the tidbits as to how it uh, was able to scale the way it did. And some of the stuff on your mind today in terms of M&A, you've, you've become CEO in recent years and, and started to become more acquisitive. So look forward to kind of picking your brain on how you think about that. And, you know, as we typically do, we'll end off with some forward looking stuff to get your take on where you think things might be headed. So with that said, Let's rewind to even before Go Easy. Like, what did you study? How did you even get into the space in the first place? I started in financial services really right out of high school. I took a job in a call center as a collections officer when I was, I guess, 18 or 19, right out of high school. I was not in a position to go do an undergrad degree right after school. I needed to be working full time to pay my way through school. So I had a full time job and then was chipping away at an undergrad uh, part-time evenings and weekends while I was while I was working and uh, and so did a variety of things in collections and customer service and, and financial services for an outsourcing firm started to get promoted and worked my way up through various management roles and uh, ended up not even finishing my undergrad I think I only ended up oh, wow. with yeah I only had about maybe two years of an undergrad degree. And by that point, I had moved into a management role. Um, I got married. I had a, my first daughter. And so I'm one of those people that still does not have an undergrad degree. And uh, I did go back years later and do an executive MBA. So I, on paper, have a, a set of MBA credentials. But one of those stories in which I was fortunate enough through sheer grit and determination and hard work to make my way kind of up the corporate ladder, if you will, without having had a formal education. So um, it makes me really question the value of, uh, of degrees when, you know, you can run a multi-billion dollar public company without one, right? Uh, perhaps yeah. we put too much stock into those, right? Yeah, look, I think, uh, and I've got two daughters, one of which is getting ready to go to post-secondary next year. So I still always give the advice that I think if you have the, the financial means and the time to get a degree, you're better off. It is going to give you some level of edge, but I absolutely 100% agree with you. It's not critical or necessary to be successful. It doesn't equal or mean success. There are a thousand other ways to find uh, career, financial, and business success that don't necessarily have to come with a degree. And sometimes being uh, smart and ambitious can be enough to have success. So I'm very fortunate that way. You worked hard from the very beginning and kind of studying on at the same time as you are working and you strike me as someone very practical and tell me about the uh the story you shared with me about how you got your wedding done because that's just an amazing personal story if you don't mind 
Yeah. Yeah. So I guess when I was uh, 19, I asked my wife to marry me. Uh, we've been married now, I guess, uh, 18. January will be 19 years. Uh, so when I was ni- 19, I asked my wife to marry me. And we uh, so we were engaged at that time. Being as early in my career as I was, I, I clearly had no money and uh, needed to figure out how to pay for the wedding. And so we were sitting in our basement apartment and I was uh, we were watching these reality wedding shows that at the time were kind of the, the all the rage. And I started to wonder if when you went on one of these reality wedding shows, they actually paid for the experience. And so I recorded one of the shows, paused it at the very end when it was on the credits so that I could write down the name of the producer, went and uh, skip traced that producer's cell phone number, called the producer and repeatedly left messages uh, until he called me back. And then I said, I was thought the show was cool and great and and uh, would he consider having us on and so he I guess as a result of um, pestering him enough agreed to meet with my wife and I and um, and then agreed to have us on on the show so that the show was essentially the premise of this particular show was that two couples that were engaged but had never met before were orchestrated to meet briefly for five minutes without talking about anything wedding related and then had to plan each other's uh, wedding. And so we basically planned someone else's wedding, not our own. We knew nothing about our wedding until the morning of the wedding. We had no idea where we were getting married, what we were wearing, the dress, the tux, the flowers. It was all planned by somebody else. We knew nothing about it till the, the day of the wedding itself. So that was when we were, I guess, 20 years old. It was kind of an interesting, fun experience along, along the way. Yeah. <laughs> That is awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to track down that that show and then watch it. It's on the internet. I know that because staff across the company tell me all the time. I I saw your wedding episode from a <laughs> reality TV show 20 years ago. That's What's awesome. the name of the show? It's called Exchanging Vows. Exchanging Vows. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> I love that story. So we talked about uh, you starting the call center and and rising the ranks. And then how did you end up going from there to go easy and, you know, getting started there? Yeah. So after, I guess, what was a total of five or six years in the call center environment doing a variety of different jobs, I did take a temporary leap to a a major brand bank, thinking that, you know, when you're young and in financial services, that a job at a bank was the holy grail. And, you know, once you got settled in there, that would be the definition of career success after about just about a year, year and a half at a bank, I realized that was not the right environment for me. I was young, ambitious, wanted to change the world and found it was a you know stifling, slow-moving environment. So I, I left the bank, found my way over to working in a startup, essentially doing consumer lending and uh, spent a couple of years at the very grassroots of a business. And so I had then accumulated this interesting blend of experience between, you know, really pure startup, financial services, big major bank lending and all the infrastructure and governance and controls that comes from that. And then time in a call center working for a lot of great brands uh, at different parts of the financial services transaction. And so had this interesting kind of blend of experience at the time, Go Easy, which was then Easy Home at the time, was just starting to get into consumer lending, had been testing consumer lending for a few years, got to the pivot point that that was now going to be the new focus for the organization. It was going to be a key growth area and then looked to recruit people that had some actual specific financial services experience. I got a call about an opportunity to join as a VP 
to start building out some of that back office infrastructure uh, to support consumer lending. And it was just perfect timing in the right the right space that I thought had a tremendous runway for growth and was building something which I, I was uh, keen on and excited about and joined uh, GoEasy in the summer of 2010. And so at that time, the business was really predominantly the retail easy home business that we had had. Our loan portfolio uh, when I started was about $15 million and had about 30 employees doing lending. And so I kind of got involved and took over leading building that consumer lending division. And and uh, and then now I've been with the company just over 12 and a half years. Spent uh, time in a variety of operational leadership roles eventually as the chief operating officer for most of my tenure. And then uh, was fortunate enough to go into a succession program for the CEO job and took over full-time as the CEO Gen 1 2019. So I'm just finishing my fourth year as the CEO. That's awesome. Maybe it's a coincidence that you started in 2019. But what I understand here is that it took up until 2019 to hit the first billion dollars in funding. And then that quickly doubled in just a couple of years. And now it's at 2 billion. Is it the Jason effect or what else was there? What happened in those couple of years that really changed it and allowed you to grow so much? It is as equally a credit to all the foundation and the groundwork that was laid for the you know, 12 years plus that we were lending up to that point as it is the execution post that point. Uh, You know, I think that in the 2018, 2019 period, we were really at the cusp of that curve of the hockey stick where you get enough brand awareness, enough distribution, enough operating leverage, enough scale, an efficient enough source of, of capital that when you get all those things finally in place that take a really long time to put in place. I mean, we, we started lending in 2006 and didn't get a single digit interest rate financing and didn't get a bank willing to uh, support us financially until 2017. So 11 years of, of lending before we could get that kind of credibility from a source of capital perspective. We up and until 2017, so for those first 11 years, only had one product, only had one interest rate, and only had one distribution channel, which was a branch network. So it really wasn't until 2017 that we then started to be in the position where we could widen the range of products, invest more in new, new channels for distribution, like digital technology and point-of-sale finance. And so it really just is a case of like, it takes a lot of years to build the platform and the foundation and accumulate the data and get and establish the credibility. And then once you get there, you can now really accelerate that growth and you get a ton of leverage from the platform that's been built. And so that's, that's really our story. It's not easy to do. It's difficult, but it's as easily described as that. It's um, we often talk about how consumer lending is has very low barriers to entry, but very high barriers to success. We see tons of companies that are able to start consumer lending. You can stand up a website and lend out of your garage. It's not There's not a ton of hurdles to stand it up and to enter the market, but it takes years and years and years and years of losses and, and losing money and trying to develop the right credit models and building all the right controls and you know, raising sufficient amount of capital to keep growing. And, you know, there's so many different points along that journey where we hit different speed bumps. And so it's really just a story of determination to stick with it and enough time passing that we could build this great, robust platform and infrastructure. And then the last several years, we've been enjoying the fruits and the benefits of now scaling on that platform and that infrastructure 
and widening and diversifying the type of financial services we offer. Jason, to your point that you just made, easy to stand a consumer lender up. And you know, I've been in non-bank fintech originated credit for 12 years now, and I've seen a bunch of consumer lending businesses get started, but you know, few have really been able to hit their stride and generate that type of profitability and return on equity. Even uh, the startup that you started with before you were even at GoEasy comes to mind. What's the element that's really allowed you? You know, you mentioned just long time and perseverance, but you know, a lot of these other businesses have very ambitious teams that are, you know, willing to persevere and, but they still just can't quite figure it out. What is it patience? Is it scrappiness? Is it just being really mindful of like financial performance year to year? What was it that really allowed you guys to stand up such a profitable business? That's a very good question. Um, these would just be my thoughts and observations from seeing many of these other businesses that you've referred to, knowing the teams, assessing the businesses, meeting different leadership groups. One of the things that we have historically done very well, and this was this was an attribute of our company's culture ingrained deeply by our former CEO, now executive chair on our board, uh, David, was run the business incredibly, incredibly disciplined. I have seen so many consumer lenders get caught up in the panache of tech and investment and innovation and trying to do really uh, creative things, uh, trying to grow quickly and under the premise that the, the profits will come later, over-invest in the platform or the infrastructure and the team before they really had the money to afford to be able to do it. We have run this business from day one so disciplined about preciously spending every single penny if and only when we can be absolutely convinced it's going to generate a sufficient return, maintaining a lean cost structure so that our margin can withstand any type of potential unexpected headwind. It could be price compression from competition. It could be regulatory change. It could be inflationary pressures. It could be unexpected credit losses. You run the business incredibly disciplined and and bottom line focused uh, from day one and, and commit that it has to be like that all the way through, then you can you have just so much more flexibility to weather all the speed bumps that you encounter along the way. I've just not necessarily seen that. And this is probably not a financial services consumer lending thing. This is probably a general business thing. I'm sure in other industries, there's probably a, a similar you know graveyard of businesses that have tried to, to scale but can only get so far and can't break through that glass. I think a big part of it is the discipline that's applied to managing the company and the operation and every detail in the business. And so I think we've we've done that, done that well. Having said that, I think at the same time, the other thing we've we've done well is been very committed to constantly planting small tests and small experiments that allow us to identify and find where the opportunities for the next area of growth are going to come from. Everything, every product, every channel, every price point, every credit tier, there's only so much growth potential available. There's only so much momentum and trajectory that that you can capture. Eventually, things slow and you run into challenges and headwinds and speed bumps. And you have to have something else that you've been sufficiently incubating, testing and trialing and learning all the nuances about. And you have to plant those tests and those trials early, like years before you need them. And we've been very good about saying, you know, when times are going well and things are going well and you're experiencing excellent growth in whatever your current kind of core categories are, 
you sure as heck better be also then testing and trying a whole bunch of new ideas so that you've got time to learn from them, figure out which one works, refine them. And we've had numerous instances where as one thing we were doing or working on that had an excellent period of growth began to slow or hit some speed bumps, we had sufficiently planted something else behind it that now was at that moment of its stride and it took over and became the next, whether that was moving from our easy home retail business into consumer lending to begin with, whether that was moving from retail lending into digital and point of sale, whether that was moving from unsecured cash loans into power sports and automotive financing, all of these things at one point were small ideas that we began to test and incubate. And then all of a sudden, one, two, three years later, we're like our largest growing channel or product or category. And I, again, I haven't necessarily seen that so much either. I've seen businesses try to stay with just one thing so narrowly and uh, not necessarily sufficiently test new ideas. And I've seen others that haven't tested new ideas sufficiently. They've tried to scattergun too many things at once, and then there's no focus and no discipline, and they fail because they haven't determined which things are actually going to work first before they, they go out and roll them all out. I've seen evidence of both. and it, it, There's a trying to thread the needle there and find that right balance, um, and I think we've found a way to do that fairly well. Have you found that, you know, building on that and, and having the right sort of extensions to your core business to begin with, has that helped in terms of the stickiness of having, the, you know, the same consumers and, and growing that relationship? Or has that helped more from an origination standpoint and bringing in new business and growing the portfolio that way? So for us, it's been both. We've tried to be very thoughtful as we think about whatever that next thing is that we could do and we could bolt on, making sure that that next incremental thing you do, that distribution channel or that product or that service is ideally the next most truly incremental thing where you are leveraging as much of the existing infrastructure and talent and skills and capabilities and investments that you've already made that mm -hmm. you're then truly layering on what is a most natural next extension. So not jumping from one thing to one thing miles away, but the next most logical thing. When we got into consumer lending, the thesis for even beginning to consumer lend was that in our retail business, where we were leasing retail household goods, furniture, appliances, and electronics, customers that we met with every day when they would come in to make their payments talked about how it was great to be able to lease household items from us, but they had other cash needs and they were finding themselves borrowing and, and getting trapped in a cycle of debt from payday loans. And so we started to realize like we knew these customers intimately well, we had existing relationships with them. We understood that segment in that market, and it was a real kind of natural next extension. As we got into unsecured installment lending, we said, well, what about if we add an additional product that was still an installment product, but was secured, but leveraged that same infrastructure, that same platform? And, and so being really thoughtful about what is that next thing that we do and trying to make it incredibly logical where you're leveraging as much as what you've already built as possible, the net effect of that is to your question, it really does both. It gives you a capacity to generate new customers and new business from that new thing that would have never considered doing business with you on the basis of what you previously had. So you get this new customer traffic. But if you've picked something that's truly incremental, adjacent, and a logical next step in the evolution of your business, it's probably likely highly relevant to most of the customers you also already have. And so for us, adding additional financial products and services has meant really doing both things. We've seen 
the proportion of new customers that we attract and acquire become very consistent as a proportion year after year, even though the, the business gets progressively larger. And we've seen our ability to retain and extend the life of our existing customer relationships continue to grow and expand as they stay with us and choose to do business with us across other product categories that they would have otherwise dealt with another another lender on. Jason, the first 11 years of the lending business from 2006 to 2017, one product effectively, then the experiment started to come in and you started to broaden the, the credit tiers and the product offering. And then more recently, you started to acquire other businesses. At what point did that start making sense? And how do you think about that as your strategy? Yeah, so I think um, you reach a point where the business has enough size and scale and you're generating enough quality performance and growth and profitability from your organically built categories that you can now venture into the idea of acquisition. Acquisition is a risky, challenging thing to do just by default in any capacity. So I think the idea that that is best done only in the point in time when you feel like the foundation of what you've built organically is solid and strong, that you can now divert some time and effort and attention and financial capacity toward acquisition. So we've kind of over the years made numerous small investments along the way. And then they sort of got incrementally larger as time passed, as we got more confident in the platform that we had built and the quality of the organic business. And so in the last several years, we've been able to, as a result of that scale and that financial and operating leverage, now venture out and, and consider rather than building the, that next new incremental product or service, being able to go, if the opportunity is right, find and acquire it, and then simply by default accelerate our, our expansion into that particular category. And so we've done that in the last several years with the acquisition of Lencare that allowed us to take a channel we were already keenly interested in and begun expanding into, which is point of sale finance, but accelerate the growth of our merchant network, accelerate the number of product verticals we were able to service by acquiring a business that was a, a really good strategic fit, a natural extension of what we were doing, leveraging, again, a lot of the common skills and capabilities that had been built. So it was a very easy extension and, and has been a, an excellent fit and performed incredibly well. To what extent have you let that business run the way it used to versus really change the uh, brand up or consolidate it under your brand and integrate operationally and so forth? How, to what extent have you swallowed it versus let it kind of run on its own? Yeah, great question. So I think deciding where on that spectrum of allowing a business that you acquire to remain more independent versus forcing a deeper level of integration, deciding where on that spectrum you want to be is such a critical pre-closed decision that has to be made by an acquiring uh, company. And I think part of it comes down to what is the growth profile and the confidence in the growth profile, the business that you're running versus the business you're acquiring look like? How much dependence is there on either revenue or cost synergies in order to make the financial model of the acquisition successful and accretive? How much have you depended on those different areas of, and source of synergies? Those things should drive and determine whether or not you need to go in and force integration and apply yourself as the acquiring business heavily, or whether or not you can be more patient and be slower 
to find those sources of integration opportunity. In our case, we chose more of the latter. Lencare was a business that was performing well, had a good growth outlook, and we simply felt that we could bring some financial synergies to the table, we could bring some cost and operational scale benefits to the table, and we could really combine the expertise and the experience and the skills of two teams to then begin to collaborate and work together to make both the businesses, the existing business and the new business, perform better. And that's effectively what's happened is that we've lifted the tide and all boats have lifted as a result. We've really only integrated the most critical back office functions that were necessary or were really administratively obvious finance in order to be able to run a proper financial output, HR in order to create some standardized employee uh, policies and programs. But otherwise, running the business with some independent operating platforms and some independent operational teams has actually allowed us, I think, to be able to grow more quickly because we can now do twice as much uh, with the business than try to get too integrated where you run into all these bottlenecks and, and bureaucracy challenges. So you know that won't be the right perfect formula for every scenario. I'm sure we'll do an, an acquisition in the future where it will be maybe different than that. And we might need to do more heavy hands-on integration, but just assessing that right formula is important. And um, in our case, we I think we've found the right balance between integration and collaboration but allowing yourself to let the business do what you pay for it to do and not going in and you know finding ways to destroy value, which can often happen. I think sometimes businesses that go out acquiring think that they're so good, so perfect, and so great that they can't resist the temptation when they acquire something to want to go in with their binder and force their way of life and culture on whatever they've just acquired and can very quickly actually disrupt and destroy the value that existed in whatever it is they went out and, and spent all that time and money and energy to find and, and acquire. So we've tried to be careful definitely not to do that, but to still bring value to the business to help it perform better. Yeah, I, I remember learning back in business school that most M&A deals actually destroy value. And it's probably that temptation that causes a lot of that. Um, but if you know how to do M&A right, you can really build uh, your business faster and, and create a lot of value. So it's uh, one of those risky, challenging things, as you point out. Uh, but it sounds like you guys are getting great traction with that acquisition. That's awesome. And so Jason, what what attracted you? Obviously, you know, a point of sale uh, financing is the field that we're in and on the Tabit side, which is the, the buy now, pay later space uh, on the, for the business to business side. What kind of got you interested in point of sale? What What is sort of your future looking thoughts on point of sale and why are you bullish on it, I guess? Yeah, so we we think about it in a pretty simplistic way, which is that we're in consumer credit and in consumer lending. And when consumers borrow money and use credit, a significant portion of the time, they're using that credit to buy goods and services. Sometimes they're using it for just call it everyday household bills, but a significant portion of the time they're using it to actually uh, procure and purchase goods and services. They're inherently buying those goods and services from the sellers of those goods and services. And so for us, point of sale financing, when we think about it, is just moving our credit providing process earlier up in the journey. So rather than a customer needing the good and service, finding the good and service, and then needing to go find us to obtain the credit to make that purchase, 
putting ourselves right at the decision point and at the moment that they're they're seeking the good or service at the point of sale. So for us, we think about it as what are the, the segment of customers we serve buying and what services are they using? And then saying those are the categories that make sense for us to be in because we're now able to capture the customer earlier in the buying journey, likely stave off the risk that they use a competitor and just increase the size of the distribution network. So, you know, the categories we're in are are regular, everyday Canadian categories. They're financing vehicles, financing power sports and recreational vehicles, financing healthcare procedures and veterinary procedures, financing regular retail household purchases, financing home improvements, all the things that an average Canadian or average Canadian family would likely do over their lives, uh, we're trying to be able to offer credit to them right at the moment in the mo- you know that they need it in the most convenient manner possible. So we didn't necessarily approach the buy now, pay later space from the perspective of trying to disrupt the incumbent payment ecosystem or to build any sophisticated, slick, you know, revolutionary technology. We were just we're a consumer lender. Yes, we heavily use technology to enable our business, and we think our technology and our analytics is best in class, but we didn't approach it from any of those exotic perspectives. It was just our customers are buying cars, and, and their dogs got to go to the vet, and their kids need braces, and they need furniture for their house, and, and they often rely on financing for that. So how do we build a product and a tech and a platform and a network that allows us to then make it easier, faster, quicker, for those customers to get access to the financing for those regular everyday needs. So uh, that's how we've thought about it. That's how we've approached it. And so we're in very traditional categories and uh, we tend to skew towards more larger ticket purchases than, you know, small, like we, we don't really do any of the very small ticket type online purchase transactions. We tend to do typically larger scale, uh, large ticket transactions, but that's how we thought of it as a natural extension for us was a customer segment that we knew was buying and using these things. And we wanted to be there to provide them financing. I think our our view of the world is we serve eight and a half million non-prime Canadians. We want to be the one-stop shop for all of their credit needs. We want it to be such that if a Canadian needs access to credit for anything and they can't get it from a traditional bank or a prime lender, we've created enough brand awareness that they immediately think and know about us as a solution and a big enough network of distribution that they can easily get access to that credit in the most convenient way possible when and where they need it. We're at their local branch, we're on their smartphone, and if they're out shopping and buying goods and services, we're right there at the checkout in order to be able to finance that purchase. So it becomes so natural for us to think about point of sale as part of that platform. Jason, you used the word Canadian several times there. Have you ever thought about going outside of Canada? We have, absolutely. Um, We have been studying other businesses in our industry as part of a regular benchmarking exercise for probably 10 years now. And for as far as back I can remember, you know, we would do a regular world tour to the UK, Australia, and the US in particular trying to get with and network with as many companies as we could that did something along the lines of what we did to pick their brain and hear what their deal issues they were dealing with and look at how they did things. And we've always found that exercise incredibly insightful. And I can't think of a visit I've ever come off of 
visiting another company in another industry or in our industry where I didn't come away with some interesting insight that I could take and steal and use and apply in our business. So it's been an excellent exercise. But on that journey, we also have identified that we believe our business model, our specific customer-focused value proposition, the skills and capabilities that we've developed and acquired, we believe can also be successful and competitive in some of these other markets, that there is room for growth, room for expansion, and a way to be a better offering for the consumer in some of these other markets. So we've been very open that that um, we would be open to expansion into another market if the right opportunity was to present itself. It's highly likely that would be through an acquisition versus through greenfield expansion that you, where you have to start from scratch with no data, no local market expertise. It's likely to be we would find a business we could buy or acquire that we we accumulate some immediate platform, some immediate data, some immediate experience that we can then test and learn on and build off of. But we're not also in any major urgent rush to have to do that. This is going back to my earlier remarks. For us, we see this as no different than the other things we've done where you need to find something ideally when things are going well and your and your organic business is doing well so that you don't rush into a bad decision you don't make too many extreme assumptions and you have the time to nurture whatever you've invested in and build on it and let it percolate so that in years down the road it can be another big engine of growth for the company I, it's weird i get asked regularly why would you consider doing an acquisition, and certainly why would you consider expanding into another market when your existing domestic organic business is, is performing so well and, and is going through a period of great growth? And you know we've often said that we think that is probably the most appropriate time to consider doing something like that because it's the period of time in which it's truly opportunistic and you're, you can be incredibly disciplined and you have much more flexibility and choice to be able to say no. One of, I think, the reasons for those acquisition failures you mentioned is there's a lot of companies I've seen, they actually wait until their organic domestic business begins to slow and there's all this pressure on them for growth and they actually have to go buy the growth. It's the only source they have for being able to continue to grow and expand. And then you make lots of bad decisions. You get caught up in the deals. You make lots of bad assumptions in the models that are riddled with thousands of data points to try to justify why this particular idea or this particular acquisition makes sense. Whereas in our case, we've been looking at all kinds of opportunities and the bar and the hurdle rate for accretion and for financial return is so high because of a good business growing organically that we're like, no, no, not good enough, not the right strategic fit, not the right culture fit, not financially satisfying. And there's all the time in the world to think through and make the right decisions. So it's actually, I think, a good time to to be uh, keeping your eyes and ears open. So very much open open to um, a new market, but in no sense of urgent rush to do so, just keeping our eyes and ears open and, and waiting for the right opportunity. Yeah, that's a fascinating insight that when you need to do something that can be very unhealthy and and cause some, some strange decision-making. I started my career in the private equity space and you'd have these moments in time where lots of private equity funds are coming at coming towards the end of their investment period and, and their funds. And so you've got a bunch of private equity buyers all trying to buy businesses at the same time, and they really need to spend the money now. And that's not a place you ever want to be in when you're buying businesses. Um, you're naturally going to end up lowering your hurdles to get it done. Let's talk a bit more about technology. 
you've always been very disciplined on your investments, make sure that, you know, every penny has a has an ROI to it. Where have you found the highest ROI in terms of technology investment specifically? And how is that evolving? Yeah, so I would say um, in a couple areas. So for us, one would be technologies that have made the role of our frontline employees more efficient, more productive, more easier for them to ramp up, to train, to be successful. For us, because we still do a significant amount of lending through a call center and a network of 400 retail locations, the job that those people do every day, how productive they are, how engaged they are, how efficient they are, that can really move the needle on our our business performance and our operation. So if we can give that frontline employee tools and technology to make it easier for them to learn, easier for us to communicate, make them more effective and more productive at working through with the things with the customer, that can translate into meaningful lifts and performance for us. So we found that general category one area where making incremental investments in our platforms for our frontline workforces has over time paid dividends. Certainly finding as many ways as possible to digitize the application and lending experience, but without feeling the need or being compelled to have to go all digital just because it it sounds great or it seems like a good idea. We've digitized, you know, the application process, digitized a lot of our marketing, digitized a lot of our actual origination and underwriting process, but we've also complemented that with the use of human relationships and human interaction extensively such that we still have a significant workforce of employees that work directly with customers during the loan origination and underwriting process. So there's been tons of ways that investing in digitizing processes to make the consumer experience faster or better or easier or the experience for our employees faster or easier or better um, have paid big dividends. And then maybe the the other category, uh, the last bucket I would say is in the area of data and analytics. I would say for sure a significant part of our success over the long term has been the investments in data and analytics um, and being able to build the right data infrastructure and the right reporting analytics and BI layer and the right team and, and expertise to use those tools to generate significant insights about our business that allow us to make better business decisions and place the right bets, being able to develop proprietary predictive models that help us determine who to lend to, how much to lend, what collection uh, solutions we should apply to the customer. That whole data and analytics area of the business has had significant investment and paid big dividends. So nothing overly exotic. We're not, we have no AI robots walking around the office or anything like that. We It's just been very focused on tools and software that make employees' lives faster and easier allow customers a more seamless experience and allow us to generate better insights to make better business decisions day in and day out. It's not, again, we think we have very good technology that can go toe to toe with most of the other companies we compete with, but we certainly don't profess to be a tech business. We're a consumer lender and the technology is just enabling what we do to make us be able to do it better. Yeah. I think we've both been in the space long enough to remember a time before the term FinTech was even used by anybody. And mm-hmm. when I first started uh, my business in small business lending, it occurred to me that I'm I'm running a very, at the end of the day, simple lending business where the numbers need to work. 
uh, and, you know, kind of never strayed away from that discipline and kind of ties back to our earlier conversation uh, about failures in the space and getting ahead of your skis with tech investment and stuff like that. It's just at the end of the day, a fairly simple business and you should only, you know, invest in tech where it makes sense to advance the business, but not to get too carried away with, uh, with FinTech. I think the space generally got pretty carried away, um, you know, five, six, seven years ago and equity capital was chasing all sorts of dreams. Right. Um, but, uh, I feel like we're in a more rational space now with the whole industry. Now, as you look forward, what gets you most excited about the next five, 10 years, you know, what do you hope the business looks like and the industry looks like five, 10 years from now, what would be mission accomplished? We operate in a very significant size market, uh, non-prime consumer credit in just Canada. So keeping the definition that narrow is still a 200 billion plus marketplace of which today we have at 2.6 billion or so, roughly, you know, one in a bit market share, one in a percent market, bit market percent market share. So we still think of ourselves as a small, tiny business that's literally just getting started. Like we think that this business has the capacity to double, triple, quadruple, and still be a very modest proportion of the marketplace that we we operate in. So we think that uh, one avenue is that we just continue to keep our head down run the business in a focused and disciplined manner and continue to chip away at accumulating more market share and and capturing a bigger proportion of that non-prime credit market. And success for us would look like, I think, continuing to compound the growth rate of this business at 20 plus percent for the next certainly five to 10 years here in Canada is entirely, entirely plausible. In addition, or or sort of as an alternative path, I think, as I said, there's probably a point in time where we find the right opportunity, the right investment to sort of widen and expand the marketplace even further by simply adding one additional market, uh, one additional country, we would significantly grow the total addressable market that we compete in. And um, and that just buys us even many more years of runway uh, to continue to grow and expand. So again, I think our, our goal in Canada is defined, as I said earlier, about being the number one, the one-stop shop for non-prime credit in Canada. So that when those eight and a half million non-prime Canadians think about needing access to credit that they can't get from a traditional prime bank, we have all of the products and services built and developed to serve their credit needs. We have all of the points of distribution developed so that they can get access to that credit in a simple, easy, and convenient manner. Uh, And through that process, we think we can grow this business several fold beyond where it's at today. And if we happen to also find a great opportunity to try and replicate this model in another market, that would be great. That'll provide an additional 5, 10 plus years of additional runway beyond. That's really just a matter of if we find the right opportunity in the right market. But we're just as happy to stay disciplined and focused on growing our business uh, here, here and executing our current strategy, which has a lot of years of runway in front of it. Jason, it's uh, been fascinating and inspiring uh having you on the show today you motivate me to get to work and build my business and i'm sure that uh anyone listening to this podcast would feel the same way so really thank you for the time and uh until next time this was finchrepreneur appreciate it thanks so much